Welcome back to the Cyclotist Podcast, everybody. It's Monday, August 22nd. We've got three days of the Vuelta behind us. We're halfway through Total Avenir. Waffenert got beat. That was exciting. Uh, we had a team time trial and a new hour record. We're going to talk about all of that today on the show. Joining me, Johnny Long. Welcome back with a new microphone. Good afternoon. The 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 sound quality of what I'll say will improve, but not necessarily the substance. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in both fronts you can improve, Johnny. Uh, Kit Nicholson, how are you? <laughs> I'm right, thank you. <laughs> that was a bit of a backhanded compliment. I, I no, wait, not a compliment. That was just a straight up diss. I'm, I apologize, it, Johnny. It's, it came it's out fuel wrong. to get better. You can always get better. I appreciate it. <laughs> and Ronan, welcome back to the show today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for thanks for having me. Uh, you don't have to thank me. I think we're paying you for it. Uh, so, <laughs> pretty sure, pretty sure that's how this works. Uh, I've got on my I've got on my run sheet here that I'm supposed to ask you about your bones, there, Ronan. What, what's up with your bones? What 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 are we talking about here? Um, well, actually, it might actually be some good news for James because usually James likes to remind us all how he's the oldest on the podcast and. At least now in terms of bones, he is no longer the oldest uh, on the Cycling Tips podcast because uh, I got a little phone call from the doctor last week that might explain just why my leg broke so easily and so badly earlier in the year. And apparently, I have a little thing called osteopenia and I'm very close to having osteoporosis. So uh, I wanted to bring it up in the podcast just because, uh, well, first of all, there could be other listeners who have a similar condition. It's basically very, very low bone density. Um, and yeah, anything below minus 2.5 means you're, you have osteoporosis in a DEXA scan. And I am currently sitting at minus 2.4, uh, which is basically the level that the doctor would expect me to be at in 35 years from now, not on my 35th uh, year, uh, which is uh, strange, but um, not... The doctor found it very strange. She was kind of explaining to me that normally it's women in their 50s who have this sort of condition. And certainly it's the youngest that she's seen anybody with that level of bone density. And I said, well, hold on a second. Let me just tell you about this thing that I've done for the last 20 years uh, involving two wheels and lots of not eating properly. Uh, and that might make a bit more sense of it. Uh, and yeah, uh, it turns out that uh cycling isn't the best thing for bone density and yeah probably a lot of other cyclists who know exactly what i'm talking about so if there's anybody listening who has been through this or is going through this at the moment they might might be able to drop me some helpful advice or tips as to what i should what i should be reading and what i should be doing going forward because uh, i would rather not speed up the process any further <laughs> And we don't want to just start Googling things because no. that uh, is slightly terrifying. So, yeah, if you've got if you've got helpful advice, if you're, a, I don't know, a doctor or you've been through this personally, I don't know, reach out to Ronan. What's what's the best way for people to reach out to you about this? Uh, jump on, on slide into your DMs. Yes, my DMs on Instagram and Twitter are both open, I think. And if they're not, I'll have checked by the time this is published and they will be open. <laughs> uh, but so you, you just mentioned the fact that that we don't want to go too too get too sidetracked by this but this is a big deal uh you mentioned that it sort of cycling is not good for this but you also mentioned to me the other day that it was less the the actual act 
choice of activity and more the fact that there was a lot of activity happening, right? I, I mean, I guess that like we've heard a lot of times that um, oh, we've heard over the years that you know the lack of impact in cycling is 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 a big problem, and it it sort of leads to issues like this. From the research you've done already, it seems like maybe the rest of us don't need to be quite so concerned. Um, uh, and there's some other factors at play. Yeah, I would say like I think the the sort of what was commonly accepted for a long time was that it was sports that had very little weight bearing, or you know, if you think of runners and they're out pounding the pavement, uh, that sort of action was thought to be good for bone density because you're basically loading up the bones and keeping them strong, you know, to sort of oversimplify it. Um, but recent studies have found similar levels of low bone density in endurance runners who. You know, nobody has more weight bearing on their bones than endurance runners. Probably the amount, just the amount of running that they do, uh, and the sort of again, probably asking Google is probably safer than asking me right now. So I'm not, I'm not saying this <laughs> as an expert, uh, but from at least a couple of the studies that I or one of the studies I've seen, uh, it suggests that it might actually be more to do with low energy availability and just the sort of endurance athlete's tendency to maybe not fuel correctly which i've certainly been guilty of in the past perhaps in hindsight those five-hour fasted spins and stuff were a bit stupid but yeah it's i think there i think certainly weight bearing activities are 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 still you know the sorts of things that would be useful for keeping up your bone density but perhaps the initial sort of research suggesting the cyclists suffer the most you know it might have been looking at cyclists and having low bone density and looking at weightlifters who have high bone density and assuming it was weight lifting weights, but maybe actually also the weightlifters eat considerably more healthy than some cyclists would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, this is something that we will obviously dig into further and that's why we would, we would, this is a call out for expertise basically because it is something that, that endurance athletes can go through as you're finding out Ronan. Uh, and, and, Whenever we come across things like this, it's it's good to, I don't know, educate and inform our audience as best we can. So at the moment, we can't do that. Uh, we don't really know much. But yeah, if you if you are an expert in this, reach out because I think that maybe a little, a little special podcast or some stories would be good on this front. So with that, we should probably get into some bike racing. The Vuelta kicked off last Friday with a team time trial, uh, which, as discussed last week, is much better than an individual time trial. I thought it was quite a, an interesting stage. Uh, lots of corners and thankfully not many or any. Was there any any big crashes? I don't think so. Uh, anyway, Kit, talk me through Friday's team time trial and then we'll talk about the sprints over the weekend. So big TTT, the, the time gaps weren't kind of as big as we thought they would be but the the top teams were basically the what we thought they would be as well yeah exactly um i mean there was a threat of rain there was more than a threat of the rain earlier in the day the roads were quite damp for the first uh first teams to start but yeah once we got to the end of the day and yumba visma rolled down the ramp um it was became quickly quite clear that they were going to be the winners and it was just a matter of who would cross the line first and get the the privilege of wearing the first red jersey. And that was Robert Hessink, which was a very nice gesture from the team 
this man who, you know, he's always a super domestique. He's won a few big events. He's won at the Vuelta, but it was a, a really nice gesture for, for the team. And then, uh, so they won by 13 seconds over Ineos Grenadiers. Um, and then one second further down was quick step out for vinyl. So that was pretty much as expected. Um, but yeah, it was all quite close then after that for fourth place was bike exchange. You had a slightly damper run and was perhaps slightly disappointing. But then between fourth and 10th, all those teams were only separated by 12 seconds. So it was quite, I mean, at least in those, in that top 10, it was quite close. There are some GC hopefuls who have lost a bit of time. Um, but uh, yeah, it went, there were no surprises, put it that way. Who lost out on the GC front? Who Who comes out of this team time trial pretty bummed? Well, anyone on EF, anyone in an EF jersey, if we consider them GC hopefuls, which we would have done one I day. I don't think we do. No. <laughs> As discussed. <laughs> oh, not Hugh Carthy. Uh, ah, maybe you. Yeah. Yeah but, yeah, but Hugh is like a top 10 GC hopeful where that amount of time probably well, is not the end of the that's world. That's why I used the word hopeful, not favorite. That was deliberate. Right. Yeah. Mm, um, gotcha. Ben O'Connor's about a minute down, a little over a minute, I think. That's actually not as bad as I thought it would be for no. him. Well, that's so. it. They were, EF was the only one that really lost out big time. They were fifth from the bottom, I think. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people will be very happy with how the TTT went. As sort of like a little, a little mini, uh, a mini nerd nugget here. It's an, in, EF is an interesting case study for me in in the team time trial space because. Like they used to win these things. I mean, they they won a TTT at the Giro. Like they used to be routinely at the very very top of these, and I think that largely came down to the influence of a guy named Robbie Ketchell, who we've talked about previously on this podcast. Uh, and he later went to Ineos, but at the time he was he was an aerodynamicist and was sort of like the Dan Bigham of 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 his day, right? And he really tuned up. Uh, EF or Slipstream or Garmin Chipotle or whatever they were called at at that time, tune them up to the point where they could actually compete in these things. I would say that the the squad itself was also just full of stronger time trials at that point in time. But we know that so much of team time trials comes down to those little tiny details. And I think that team in particular is a really interesting, like I said, like a case study. I mean, they go from being right at the very top of team time trials to, I mean, let's be honest. Friday was not great. It was awful. It was really bad. <laughs> I should correct. So how does that happen? Yeah. I should correct myself and say I, they're seventh from the bottom. Um, they, weren't, they weren't last. As I suggested, they would be in the last podcast. I mean, that was slightly hyperbolic. But I would, if you look at the team list for this EF team, there is not a time trialist among them. I think maybe Julius Vandenberg looks like a time trialist, but he didn't even finish with the front group. They're here for top 10 and... Success in the hills. Mark Padun can usually do a good time trial as well, but you know, one one time trialist is and Rigo. Is, yeah, but even you know, if we consider Rigo a time trialist, two two probably are not going to carry a whole team. But wasn't Robbie Ketchell like one of the? Didn't he like develop like a backpack CDA monitor sensor thing like? 15 years ago or something at this point for Slipstream way back when the team first set up. Yeah, he had all kinds of crazy technology. He worked at a wind tunnel um, in, I think it was in Fort Collins uh, for a while. And um, he and I actually went to the same school and and overlapped by like a year, I think. Uh, 
he was probably smarter than me uh, <laughs> in, in in many, many, many ways. Anyway, Robbie, uh, he, he definitely sort of defined that team for quite some time. And I'm thinking back sort of like 2013, 14, 15, 16 kind of uh, timeline. And then, yeah, he got he got basically stolen by Ineos, who I'm sure offered him uh, more cash for that, that than, than EF could provide at the time. But without him, it's been a, a slow, slippery slide down to uh, hanging out with some of the random tiny Spanish teams, which is where EF was on Friday. And like, granted, there's you know there's there's very few people like that in the cycling space, like Robbie Ketchell, who have that sort of you know uh, just way way of understanding things and seeing things in a different light that many people wouldn't, and sort of being at the forefront of innovation and and. You know, helping a team develop, even just their team time trial performances, like he would have for Slipstream back then. But you know, even taking that aside, there's, or even taking innovation aside, there's there's very little about this EF team at the Vuelta this year that you could say really was at the cutting edge of of anything in terms of you know. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is we shouldn't really be too surprised Rude. by their performance. No, uh, yeah, <laughs> no. And, uh, you know, it's uh, they've gone from I think just the contrast to Stark and that they've gone from having guys like Robbie Ketchell, who granted are few and far between, to having almost zero cutting edge approach to their uh, time trial performance. Now, if it was a team time trial on the tour, it could have been a different story, but it isn't, and it, and it is. What happens when they add Carapaz, a genuine Grand Tour hopeful, to their uh, well, Grand Tour favorite to their lineup next year? Well, it depends mm-hmm. if there are any more team time trials. We had to wait since what 2019 from the last one Fine, to this one. Point. So we just <laughs> we just may maybe I mean honestly that that that's part of the probably part of the reason why a lot of teams just don't pay that much attention to it. Why why would you why would you dump a bunch of of time and energy and and money into team time trials specifically if they don't hardly exist anymore? Now a lot of the stuff that is developed for individual time trials is obviously going to port over uh, basically all of the the technological improvements. And and I think that we saw that with the teams that are at the top, right? I mean, the teams that are at the top are the ones that we know pay the closest attention to this sort of thing. In addition to obviously having very strong teams, both are required for success in the team time trial. You could, you could have a team of just the best team time trials on the planet. And if they're on slow equipment at 60 kilometers an hour, they're not winning, right? Uh, so you do need both in this particular instance. Yeah, and there's actually, you know, if there's some sort of data behind, if there's a team time trial in the tour, regardless of how many other team time trials there is throughout the season, and there is others that you know we don't even talk about. We're talking about this one because it's in the Vuelta. But if there's one in the tour, pretty much every tour team will up their team time trial focus from you know when the tour route is announced in November all the way up until July when the the time trial happens, actually happens, and it's similar as well with the Giro. Whereas if there's a team time trial there, there'll be quite an increase in, in focus for teams for that. Also, I remember the Giro in 2014 started in Belfast, and as early as March, which I guess in terms of the Giro wasn't really that early. It's about two or three months beforehand. But uh, Quick Step were in Belfast. Uh, with some with some sort of aero experts from Specialized doing like a some sort of recon of not just a recon of the course but actually like mapping the course with all sorts of sensors and software and yeah they, they had a car rigged up with with all manner of things uh, and that was you know not just to sort of get a profile of the course they could have easily got that but actually you know they're working out 
you know, which riders are going to be the best for the team time trial, which would influence their whole Giro selection, which riders would be best for, you know, even just right down to the order they were starting on the start ramp uh, and how far it was to the first corner and what that corner was like. And they spent literally an entire day just reconning the, the team time trial course. That That's how much detail goes into it. Not sure if the same level of detail went into this team time trial, um, but certainly if team time trials aren't happening, there is... Not not only is there not as much detail, but there is no focus from the teams on team time trialing. So if we've just had three years with no team time trials, I don't know if that's because of COVID or whatever, the teams couldn't be that close to each other or why there's been no time trials for the last three years. Um, but you can imagine that some teams are maybe way off where they might have been had we had these things more often. So do we like them? Oh yeah. Are they good for are they good for not you, Ronan? I'm not asking you. <laughs> are are do do we do we like team time trials as part of Grand Tours? Yes. But I think Fridays wasn't long enough. I like a longer team time trial, I think. I don't know. See, maybe I, that's I like them included, but they there's always like an a level of trepidation beforehand. Is this gonna destroy the rest of the race? Is you know, uh Roglic gonna get a minute and a half here yeah. before they've even, you know, they, they've only done 20 kilometers and suddenly the race is almost decided. That's, nobody wants to see that. But, you know, when we get to the start of stage two and there has been so few, you know, in terms of time GC casualties from the team time trial, I, th- I think then we can sort of appreciate it a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should do team time trials at the end of Grand Tours. A little, little, little Champs Elysees team time trial with like the the four dudes that are left on each. On each team. I think there's a rule against that. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a rule against that. First, they have to be in the first week or the first. Yeah, the first third. First of the race. third. Yep. So yeah. that you That's have enough I mean. riders to. So it's not just two Cofidis riders trying to get around and make the time <laughs> cut. Um, but they are infinitely better than individual time trials, and you can narrow this down to being the fact that they're just over much quicker. And you're not just waiting. <laughs> and either you have all the GC guys front loaded and send the rest of the, like in the tour when the rest of the time trial was kind of like, what's going on here? Um, or you're waiting the whole day for like the final 20, 30 minutes when they all just come through and win. The only thing I would change about team time trials is yes, have it within the first third, but say right on stage seven, which would be, you know, right within the first third of the race, but have it in reverse team GC. And have the teams like Hammer Series actually chase each other. So you start if you start if you're ten seconds down on another team on the GC, you start ten seconds behind them, and there's some sort of bonus for beating them to the finish line. That that's the only thing I would change. Well, the bonus for beating them to the finish line is you just you win, right? Like I, uh, I think well, that's, yeah. First first yeah. team to the finish line gets you know their GC leader gets a, a minute time bonus or something. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually one of the few things about the Hammer Series that I that I that I liked. Uh, the hammers. Oh yeah, well, I'm sure. What's happening with it? Is it still sort of, going yeah, on? Whatever happened to that? Did I, anybody expect we'd be talking about the hammer series today? No, <laughs> <laughs> not on the run sheet. Uh, <laughs> it was weird. It was a, like I was, I was, the hammer series was very weird, but there were some weird bits of it that were actually very entertaining, and that was one of them. Where I mean, just to be very clear about what you're describing here, Ronan, is like. You know, if if a team, what do you take it off? Team GC is that what you take it off of? Probably, right? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I haven't figured out all the intricacies of how it might work here. You know, in the, in the ten <laughs> well, seconds well, I had to think about it. But. In the context after of this time trial, we've the of the first day, Yamavision would start first. Ineos Grenadiers would start thirteen seconds later. Quick Step would start one second after them. 
and it would yep. just keep going like that. Which would be like, fantastic. <laughs> it would be utter carnage. Quick, quick step, quick step versus Ineos racing for the first corner. <laughs> Do you get them working together to then just put time into Jumbo Visma? How does that work? That'd be cool. Ooh. Uh, you might have to ban that. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> the UCI would, like would definitely you would, ban you would, that. You would definitely get stuff. You would probably get increased sort of tactical use of riders, right? Like if you started, if you're six seconds back or whatever, you'd see teams be like, we just need six seconds. Stick a, stick a guy in the front, do an epic monster pull, and then pop off, right? <laughs> I think you'd, you, I think it'd be amazing. I think we've solved cycling. Uh, with that, <laughs> let's move on from the team time trial. Uh, let us know what you think of Ronan's fantastic idea. I don't know. Tweet at us. Tweet at him. Tweet at me. At Cycling Tips. Uh, yeah, let us know what you think of, of a Hammer Series style pursuit uh, team time trial on stage seven of next year's Tour de France. Christian Pirou presumably is listening, so I'm Almost certain we will he, get that. He listens every week. But anyway, but let's move. Let's move. Let's move into stage two and three of the Vuelta. Before we do that, with slight word of warning for anybody who is a fan of any other sprinter, there this from this point onwards, there's going to be a heck of a lot of bias in this podcast. <laughs> Very little balance, uh, and it's probably not a good place if you're not a Sam Bennett fan. This is now Sam Bennett Tips podcast. Uh, so, Kit, because we cannot rely on Ronan to provide any sort of measured response here. Kit, can you please tell me what happened over the weekend, uh, Saturday and Sunday, in the two Vuelta stages? Yes, well, uh, as everyone, I think, is aware, there were two very flat, very Dutch stages. Um, even the profiles looked almost identical with a little fourth category bump in the last third-ish. Um, and there were textbook sprint stages with a breakaway of local riders and Spanish riders up the road. And they were slowly but steadily caught by the uh, sprint team-led peloton. And Sam Bennett won twice. And uh, to, as a, just to repeat the carbon copy nature of the two stages, Mads Pedersen also came second twice. Just- <laughs> okay, I, I, question though. Question though. On Saturday... What on earth yeah. was Alpeson <laughs> doing? Uh, so, so first of all, describe literally what they were doing, and then we can sort of more philosophically describe what on earth they might have been actually been thinking about while they were doing it. Yes. So, well, the, so the gap went, I think it was a five-man breakaway. The gap went to about five minutes before Alpeson de Koenig put Floris de Tier on the front, who is the smallest cart horse you've ever seen. Um uh, and he started towing the peloton and the gap came down to about 16 seconds twice in the first 70 kilometers um and it was just just they were yo-yoing the whole day um and then they were caught the breaker was caught at around the 60 kilometers to go mark um and Luis Angelmate had a bit of a solo rampage he's out hunting for kilometers solo or in the breakaway to um raise money to plant some trees um and yeah, so then he, he acted as a bit of a carrot for the peloton, for Alperson de Kunic, who had no allies at all. Uh, nobody else was willing to help them. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, th- eventually they caught Mate and it was a sprint stage. So the rest happened as you might expect it to. I like um, Lewis Angel Mate's very 
solo and individual uh, mission this welter <laughs> and yeah. described completely out of context it makes absolutely no sense <laughs> Um, I'm also hoping that that becomes Florida Tears' official nickname and he starts like having it inscribed on the side of his shoes. Well, The smallest to, cart horse. Yeah. What I, What's great about uh, Florida Tear is that he came straight from the Tour of Denmark. Oh. And he was riding the Tour of Denmark on Thursday. He was 15 kilometres from the finish of stage three of the Tour of Denmark when the team car said, Floris, get back here. You're race, racing the Vuelta tomorrow. <laughs> And they put him, and he was he was in Denmark on Friday morning, um, on ready to get on a red eye to Amsterdam, to go to Utrecht, to start the team time trial. Um, so yeah, he was uh, he might he might have been delirious basically on Saturday. <laughs> well, because yeah, so here's the, here's the weird part, right? You get this gap that goes out to five minutes, and then you stick this not particularly large bike racer on the front. And he pulls it all the way back, like all the way back, all by himself, <laughs> down to 16 seconds. And and he's just come from the Tour of Denmark, and he probably is slightly sleep deprived. Like, does he just not know how fast to ride? Is Flores de Tier the new Tim de Klerk, and we just don't know it yet? Like, what? I don't understand how this... If he's the new Tim you, de Klerk, then he's the greatest Tim de Klerk ever, because no no other team can benefit from it. Because sitting behind him, there's no draft at all. That's genius. So maybe this is maybe this is the tactic. Maybe yeah. this is the opposite tactic where they just like, no, no, we're going to use this guy because that way, not only are we pulling, but everyone else is as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except that nobody else went to help, which is maybe, so maybe they were onto that. Maybe we've sold it. Maybe there's actually like a slight time zone difference between Denmark and Holland and, and Netherlands and he was like, half an hour ahead of where he thought he was in the stage and needed to bring it back sooner. That's the only real explanation. It should also be noted that there were some serious, well, question marks over the time gaps anyway. Um, with mm. they, they kept doing, they kept going from, uh, I mean, so they definitely came to within about 16 seconds because you could see it on the road, but there were points where you saw the time gap coming down second by second by second, and then suddenly it let back out to two and a half minutes. So we're not sure that the time gap is that reliable. That's, that's the conversion between Danish kroners and euros that okay. fluctuated a lot at the moment. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that genuinely might actually explain it. If the, if, if the team car is sitting behind them and they have not been watching the time gap uh, militantly and, and they're like, oh, Actually, it's two and a half minutes now. So, uh, Flores, you need to go faster on the front. And then accidentally he brings it down to 16 seconds and, and we end up in this very strange, very strange situation. I, I feel like Peloton's chasing breakaways. Something, it's just broken this year. Ronan, you wrote a, like a whole story about why specifically it's sort of broken at the finish line and, and why breakaways are surviving more. But the whole thing just seems kind of weird and broken this year like the, the 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 script has gotten ripped up and chucked away and i think it's probably a a it's a collection of factors right some of it is technological some of the some of it is the fact the brakes going faster than it used to some of it is just simply the fact that that bike races are raced differently than they were before covid and it just like it has not changed back uh you know riders are saying this during the tour de france all over the place where Every single day is just full gas all day. And bike racing didn't used to be like that. And I think that the, essentially there are 
they're still trying to figure out what that means for the new script, right? For like how you actually make bike races end and happen in the way that, that a particular team wants them to. I'd say having just, you know, repeatedly lost out on stages that they had teed up as being sprint stages this year, the sprinters teams are probably just that little bit more nervous now where if a team has five minutes or if a break has five minutes, well, that's way too much on such a fast course as Saturday could have been, you know, pan flat, very little in the way of, you know, natural obstacles to, to slow the breakdown. Uh, and, you know, maybe they just want to keep it up between 16 and 20 seconds where it's much more manageable. Much, much, much more manageable. <laughs> we want to be able to see them. <laughs> at all Don't times. let them out of your but, sight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just weird. The whole thing is what weird. What about the KOM on Saturday? That was even weirder. They yeah. they sprinted for like four different times. Yeah. I, I didn't really get what was happening there. I, I mean, there was a bunch of banners over the road, but they weren't the actual banner. They were just like people <laughs> with big flags. And and they sprinted for them over yeah. and over again. I don't really. It made me think of the triple jump, which is the strangest looking long jump I've ever seen. But yeah, it just it was like Julius Vandenberg sprinted four times for two points. <laughs> Did a hop and a skip, and then finally jumped. Yeah. Finally, well, finally jumped. When was the last time, except from Magnus Court in Denmark? When was the last time we talked about a fourth category climb? You know, being, being so interesting. We need more surprise points along the course of stages like Saturday and Sunday where you don't know, you know, roughly speaking, it's going to be within this two kilometer radius, but where exactly mm. the points will be awarded is anybody's well, guess. Well, they just radio through and they're like two Go. kilometers, <laughs> three seconds, three bonus seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I think this might've been something from Hammer Series. So I think this is, this is, uh, <laughs> I think they were onto something. I think the Hammer, the Hammer, it, is it dead? Is Hammer Series We're dead? just going to repackage it, but not call it the Hammer yeah. Series because that's a weird name. Uh, right. We're just going to add elements of it to the Tour de France. I, I also think uh, uh, Kaylee has the Hammer trademarked now, so uh, they might not be able to use that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. For fans of the Nerd Alert podcast, you'll understand that reference. Uh, well, Sam Bennett took two stage wins. Over the weekend, this is a big deal for him. It had been quite some time before or since he uh, he had taken a a Grand Tour stage win. Uh, what was it? Was it the twelve months, fourteen months? No, a long time. Twenty twenty. Uh, wow. So wow. So even longer than that. Ronan, as our chief Sam Bennett correspondent, uh, could you describe your feelings as he crossed the line twice in a very similar manner ahead of the same rider? Over the weekend, it, it was it was genuinely meaningful uh, and and a good return for him. He's had he's had a rough go of it. I think you know, regardless of my feelings, I think for Sam there would have been you know a certain amount of relief there, and you know, sort of uh, just not even that. I think it would have been playing on his mind all that much, knowing Sam. You know, he it, it, outside influences very rarely affect what Sam does. It's it's all sort of intrinsic motivators and uh, the way he sort of sees himself as. You know, a, a sprinter. It, it's it's not necessarily what anybody else is saying. It's it's always himself who's putting the most pressure on himself. So, uh, I think, you know, for Sam himself, he would have been massively relieved to take a win. And then, even as he said just in the press conference, you know, after his second stage one, that gives him a lot of motivation going forward. Now, I think the first one was just like, right, we've I'm back where I belong. 
I've proven I can still do this to anybody who ever doubted it. Um, and then Sunday Patrick was just, uh, yeah, Patrick LeFevre being the, the main one there. Sunday was just, you know, further confirmation of that because, you know, the days of absolutely dominant sprinters winning countless stages per Grand Tour are sort of gone. So you really need to be on a, you know, a, a really high level to be able to win multiple stages at any Grand Tour these days. So to do, to take two from two, I think it's huge, but I sort of, you know, want to go back a bit further to when Sam and I were teammates at Ampost. The amount of times, even before he got to Ampost, and we're talking over a decade ago at this point, there, you know, there was people already writing him off then. He had knee injuries, he had different bouts of illness, he had all sorts of things that went against him. I remember even, you know, 2013 was his big breakthrough year. And when the two of us, uh, uh, well, I think when Sam didn't finish the National Road Race Championships in his hometown in June of 2013, a lot of people thought that was, you know, this guy who the whole country thought was going to be the next Sean Kelly um, was finished with cycling. And, you know, that that was the final nail in the coffin for a season that had already gone quite badly. And, you know, as teammates and all, the four or five Irish riders and team left, that race sort of, Maybe not thinking, but at least subconsciously expecting that was the last time we were going to see Sam Bennett in an Ampost jersey. And within a month of that, he was winning a stage race in his hometown. Uh, within a week or two of that, he was winning pro races in Belgium. Uh, and within a week or two of that, he uh, was shoulder barging Sir Bradley Wiggins in the Tour of Britain to uh, win a reduced point sprint, having just followed Nairo Quintana up Pool Road, I think it was, in Wales, which is like insanely steep climb uh and there was literally like 10 or 15 riders left in the front group and you know sam's there winning that stage and that was the beginning you know he went from there to net up and jura and he went from net up to what became bora and then bora to quickstep and that was sort of when you know all the the troubles of the last two years sort of started and i think uh it, it i would for me in a way in terms of how i felt on saturday and yesterday it was like literally no surprise i think perhaps the rest of the cycling world might have been surprised that sam's back certainly a lot of people weren't even considering him for the bunch sprints in this race but um, it, it, for i can only speak to how i felt it was just like oh there's sam doing his thing again when everybody writes him off when everybody thinks it's game over he'll just keep his head down like a lot of the stuff that's said about him over the last i know you know def, definitely it has sort of got him and I know there's been a couple of other sort of issues that have cropped up over the last 15 months or so that have held him back. Nothing major, just like other illnesses and injuries and stuff that have held him back over the last 15 months or so. And, you know, rather than make excuses or sort of get drawn into, you know, arguments in the media back and forth with it, whether it's the Fervre or whoever else might be, Sam just prefers to keep his head down, go training, do what he's supposed to do. And yeah, I was, I was, you know, not, I, w I was not surprised on Saturday, but I was absolutely delighted for him to to take that after what he's gone through recently. There, there's sort of a sprinter's mindset thing that happens, I think, because you could actually, you could tell some similar stories about like Mark Cavendish, right? Like Mark Cavendish tends to be at his best shortly after being at his absolute worst right where he where, seriously, like if you look at over the span of his career, it's 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 highs and lows, right? And he seems to almost feed off the lows into his best form and his most dominant sprinting. 
and it feels to me a little bit like like Sam is the same way. I mean, obviously, I don't know the guy personally at all, unlike you, Ronan. But that's the sense that I get from the outside is that if you look at that career, he's just very he's very adept at bouncing back, basically, and bouncing higher than than he was before. Yeah, you know, I think it's actually it actually crossed my mind over the weekend was. I don't know how Sam would feel about it. I, I've no, yeah. I, I I don't mean that as an I don't know how Sam would feel about it. He wouldn't like the idea. I just genuinely don't know how Sam would feel about it. But him and Cavendish do have a lot in common in that when they get tend to get knocked down, and neither of them has ever got knocked down because you know they weren't putting their work ethic in, they weren't training right, or they weren't doing this or the other. They've both, you know, Cavendish in particular was you know his it was uh, SPM var bar virus that sort of knocked him out a couple of years ago and really left him on the brink of the end of his career. Um, and, you know, I, I spoke about the times that Sam was injured and uh, sick in that, but there was also times that he just was not making the tour squad because Peter Sagan was in the same team. Uh, you know, and that would also be difficult pill to swallow if you're, you know, at the time Sam was one in like three stages of the Giro and then not getting selected for the for the tour. That That's, that's not easy to cope with if you're a sprinter. Um, but definitely, you know, the... the that there is that sprinter's mentality there that like, I will show you or you know and Sam while Cavendish is maybe a bit more vocal about that Sam will never not even to people that he knows will he come out and say I will prove these people wrong but I do get that sort of impression from him that you know it's uh, that he is highly motivated to come back and, and even there's I actually get the impression from Sam that as good as he was, or as good as he is, or as good as he has ever been, he always thinks he's not good enough. It's like he's always looking to make himself better. Like when he won the green jersey, I, you know, I remember him like texting me like pictures of shoes and that, saying, "Do you think this is? Is there anything to be found in here? Is there any gains in this? Or is there, you know, even just even when he's like winning on the Champs say in the green jersey, which is, you know, if there was a certificate." To say you are the best sprinter in the world, it would be a picture of you crossing the the finish line in the Champs Elysees with your hands in the air. But still, he's thinking like, "I need to make myself better." And I think that's what you know. Uh, he wouldn't have been spending the last year and a half even doubting him, you know, or listening to the critics. He would have been spending the last year and a half thinking, "How do I make myself better?" Or right now, where I'm at, is that good enough? And while some people would answer that question, yes. Being the best in the world is good enough. Sam, I don't think he's ever seen himself as the best in the world. And so when you're when you are one of the best in the world and you don't see yourself that way, that tends to lead you to become even better, I think. And that you're, you know, you've already got the talent, you've already got the commitment, but you're still looking for more and more and more. And in a sort of positive and healthy way, sure, that could be you know that that it, it it could lead in the wrong direction if you or if you never see yourself as good enough. But I don't think it's like that with Sam. It's it's more a case of, you know, what if these other riders go away and get better? I need to be ready for that. You know, and rather than lying down and just waiting for someone to beat him, he's always trying to find a way forward. Hmm. How many more opportunities uh, for sprints are there in this Walta? There's not many, right? I mean, that's why this first weekend was so was so crucial. Is it like two, if I remember right? But I, yeah, um, there's a couple of stages that could go either yeah. way. But you know, the, given that there's other riders who might now look at Sam's dominance and say, "Well, we need to get rid of this guy," um, that that could mean there's even fewer opportunities. 
Well, in particular, it's because the guy that came in second both days, Mess Peterson, is is probably more versatile, uh, climbs a bit better. Uh, I mean, if you just look at the world championship that he won <laughs> with a lot of climbing in it in Harriet. Uh, yeah, so I, I would imagine that Trek is probably going to be on the the drop Sam Bennett <laughs> train as much as as much as humanly possible for them over I might, the weeks. I might just suggest that they go on to YouTube and, and look up uh, stage five of the 2013 Tour of Britain into Carefully, where uh, Sam, yeah, again, followed Quintana up this viciously steep climb and then shoulder branched Bradley Wiggins in the yellow jersey out of his way into the final corner and out sprinted. Uh, well, well, there was no other sprinters there, so it's not really uh, all that impressive. Who else? The other riders in the front group were like Simon Yates and Bradley Wiggins and Quintana, uh, Dan Martin. You know, it, it was a group full of climbers, except this one guy who, yeah, was also a sprinter. Did you guys see the other performance of the weekend? The guy on the bike path who kept pace with the breakaway for two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I did not see that. Did not see that. That's impressive, though. For me, it's the the cycling football equivalent of when one player just like hits a really like pinpoint pass from one side of the field to the other, and it just lands right at their feet. And then there's a polite applause from the crowd. It's like the equivalent of that, where it's just like this has very little bearing on anything that's going on, but it's just very visually and aesthetically <laughs> pleasing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he was great. Uh, I missed it entirely, uh, but I. That's actually one of my favorite things about about uh, racing in that part of the world is there are almost are almost always bike paths mm. on the side of the road, and so you get a fair number of people trying to do that. Uh, there was one a couple of years ago where it was like a like a twelve year old kid who actually stuck with the breakaway for a ways. Up oh, the Tour of Britain last year. Like, like yeah, 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 that's that what cool. that's what it was. Yeah, uh, and the kid was just like would not get dropped <laughs> to the point where the breakaway guys were like. What are you? What are you still doing here? <laughs> that that kid's sponsored by the same crew as Phil Gaiman now. Really, really, <laughs> yeah. What? That's fantastic. This has been a weird podcast. Bright future. Learn a lot of weird sure. things. <laughs> It'll not be long before he's taking Phil Gaiman's KOMs. Mm. <laughs> uh, bright future for that kid. And yes, to wrap up, Sam Bennett. Uh, I think we're all just happy for him. I think we're happy to see him back at the top. So. One would hope that he uh, stays healthy and stays uninjured and and finds his way to the Tour de France again next year. Last little bit of Walter news, some unfortunate news. Uh, Mike Woods crashed out. I know we've got a fair number of Canadian listeners out there and just you know other fans of Mike Woods, and so unfortunately, yeah, uh, sustained a concussion, but no other fractures, which is good. Uh, also good that that. You know, frankly, good that he's out of the race if he has a concussion because we don't always see that. And so kudos to medical team over at Israel Premier Tech for actually following a concussion protocol. And, uh, well, we just hope that Woodsy's back home and he's in Andorra or something uh, recovering and getting ready for whatever's next. Uh, (laughs) There are, unfortunately, probably some relatively serious relegation battle uh, ramifications of that incident we don't need to get it into those too much right now but it looks increasingly likely that israel premier tech will not be in those top 18 spots for the end of the season um they've said a couple different times and sylvan adams has said they don't really care uh and so we'll we'll see how much they don't care uh i would assume 
that they will find their way into most of the races they want to be in anyway, and they may even hang on to a World Tour license anyway, because this is not sort of a guaranteed promotion relegation system like you would find in other sports. It's more, this is one metric they're going to use to determine things, and so we'll see how it all plays out. But uh, certainly, I think they were kind of counting on Woods for quite a few points, this Vuelta, and, and him heading home, well, makes that impossible. So heal up, Mike, uh, and that's the that's the end of our little Vuelta coverage here. There are a couple of things that happened over the weekend, and some that are actually still happening right now. <laughs> On my run sheet, European Championships happened. Kit, that's that's about that's close to all we have to say about the European Championships yeah. this year. Uh, but but you know, fill us in a little bit. Well, to summarize. Uh, the European Championships were held in Munich and there was a, a kind of loop route that they did ending in a sprint. Um, the men's race was won by Fabio Jakobsen, so he's resplendent in the stars. Uh, and then the women's race yesterday was slightly more interesting than the men's. There were a lot of attacks in the middle of the stage where they tried to ruin the Dutch team's day with Lorena Wiebes among them. But it came to a sprint and Lorena Wiebes is the European champion. So... Yeah, that's basically what happened. Do they let Brits in anymore since Brexit? <laughs> well, we are still in Europe, but the Brits don't <laughs> bother to. We, I mean, we do. They, we had a lot on the track. The the, the you're, Brits. You're but, very but, lucky. The channel that you've just said that on probably won't elicit the response that it may have done had you said that elsewhere. <laughs> the, the Conservative Party haven't figured out a way to physically move the land mass away. But I think they're See, working I, on it. I, I'm I'm in Scotland, so I'm firmly. Uh, of the mind that we're still in Europe and hope to stay there. Um, but yes. The, uh, I, yeah. The Brits the don't bother to stand. I, I yeah. find somewhat hilarious. Uh, also really sad. Uh, <laughs> and I, and I asked the, I asked the question mostly, actually entirely in jest. Yes. Uh, but I'm glad that you haven't floated away. That's good. Uh, <laughs> I think we should move on from the European championships. <laughs> uh, well, Van Aert got beat. Another another sort of quick hit news item here. Uh, he at the at the Bremer Cyclassics, Classics, he didn't win, which is always newsworthy. Yeah. Well, what the great thing about the Bema Bema Cyclassics Classics was that it was uh, meant to be another sprint stage, uh, sprint day rather. Um, which I always think is slightly bad planning on I don't know whose part the UCI's maybe to have. We always seem to have time trials at various different races on the same day. We always seem to have sprint days on the same day. But anyway, so it was. It's been in twenty five years. Uh, the this Hamburg one day race has been won sixteen times in a bunch sprint. Um, it's never in recent years, particularly, has never been won by anyone other than Elia Viviani, Anna Demar, Caleb Ewan. Um, but. Uh, yesterday was not was not a bunch sprint, and it was a little a small group. Five men got up the road after a massive crash wiped out most of the favourites, which is a real shame. But the w- eventual winner uh, made the whole thing much more rosy uh, in the end because uh, Marco Haller managed to out sprint and out fox Wout van Aert from a small group, um, and it's the big easily the biggest win of his career. Um, and Wout van Aert looked rather frosty on the podium. And Marco Haller looked really excited. Yes. Do you think Wout van Aert saw Mads Pedersen get two second places in a row at the Vuelta and was like, I'm not letting that guy take what I do? Because he did that tour, didn't he? Three days. He's like, I need to remind everyone that I'm the second place guy. 
<laughs> and maybe if someone had asked him that, he would have called that a shit question. But we 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 couldn't possibly know. <laughs> We've never experienced that personally. So uh, I want to come back to White Van Art in a second, but first of all, just a, a word for Marco Heller because you know it was uh, a fantastic one. I didn't realize the Beamer Classic was the the side classics or whatever it used to be called until later, and yeah, it just made it all the more special for him, I guess. But, you know, he has recovered, or he has fully recovered, obviously. But he did have a nasty crash a few years back uh, with a lot of nasty injuries coming out of that crash. So to see him sort of climbing back and top step the podium is no doubt a big day for him. Yeah, and it's it's been a great year for him because he took his fifth career win and his first since 2015, earlier this year, um, at, in the Tour of Norway, um, I think. Um, yeah, so, yeah, he's obviously finding a really good environment and some great success with Bora Hansgrohe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a word for Bora as well, who won two stages of the Vuelta with Sam, uh, won this with uh, Marco Halla, but also they won two stages of the Baltic Chain Tour over the weekend. Um, so for a team that a lot of us might have been quite sort of nervous about at the start of the year, they've They've really pulled off a massive not not because they won two seeds of the Baltic Tour, but um, you know, in general, looking at their season, they've had a great year. I think this might not be something to put into the podcast, but the name of the guy who won the general classification. How do you say that in the Baltic Tour? The Baltic Tour. It's hilarious. I think if if I I, I mean I have no right grasp arm Estonian, but right arm is a great name. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking it up. That's a that's a parent with a sense of humour, ah. right? <laughs> 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 it is it's right arm yeah. uh i mean you know i think i think first of all yes leave this in the podcast and, and <laughs> second of all uh if anybody oh. out there is from estonia estonia uh or i don't know how different the languages are whether like toms could help us here Possibly. but yeah then his name is r-a-i-t is is the, the first name and uh last name is a with the the, um, Two dots um, over top of it. Yeah. Is that an umlaut? No. RM. Anyway, somebody reach out and tell us how to say that, whether it's just right arm, which is a great, just a great name. Ronan, I just remembered uh, after you brought uh, Sam Bennett up again that in his, I think, stage three post-race interview, he referred to Danny Van Poppel as my man, which I imagine is a, a regional your difference to your man. <laughs> Your man, Danny. And then he quickly did corrected he, himself and was like, oh, I mean Danny Van Poppel. <laughs> <laughs> and I just like that's something that I, I pick up on now. There you go. All we need all we need now is for one. Wow. We actually, we had a, a British winner at Tour de Lavenir today. Uh, we need, we need a, a post-race interview Chebs out call out. I think we'll, <laughs> we will have the complete set. <laughs> How's Before we get into the Turtle Avenue, and just very quickly, we were all surprised when Van Aert lost out in that uh, reduced group sprint. Um, but actually, I've just seen a, a, a stat on Twitter that I cannot confirm the accuracy of, but it suggests that in small group sprints of less than 15 riders in the front group, since joining Jumbo Visma, White Van Aert has won eight out of 23, which is. Yeah, heck, one in eight races is kind of nice, but it's only over 34% return rate uh, for a guy who's considered a world-class sprinter. Uh, and the tweet suggests, should we 
start questioning whether Van Aert is actually choking in these closing oh stages of big races Ooh, where spicy. he really is the favourite. The likes of the age this year, Amstel, was it last year the Amstel gold finish, photo finish camera was broken or was that the year before? I can't remember, but the year the camera was broken. Um, and then a few other races also that he's finished second on where we might have thought he could have taken them on. How how do you, how do you go about figuring that style? Have they been has whoever that person is been sitting there since the Van Aert across the line second, been going back through every single race? Um, how do you do that? Well, I can't was, understand. Like for a guy as we discussed in the Tour de France, who's had what is it, in around let's say a hundred second places in his professional career, yeah, it, it wouldn't have been straightforward to uh, sit down and go through them all, but. Uh, I would imagine they start by just focusing on the races that he's finished second. And... There is another factor to this <laughs> to this second place, though, is that there were two Bora riders in that five man group. Ah, uh, so that might have made a bit of a difference. I mean, Holler mm. did. Uh, he started sprinting early, and Van Aert waited for him. I don't know. It's a factor. Whether it's a big enough factor for that stat to be affected, I don't know. I yeah. Wout the choker. Oh, yeah, I like the I boldness think, uh, of that. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's quite a take. That's quite a hot <laughs> take there. Uh, <laughs> let's move on. Let's move on from uh, small to medium-sized sprint races and talk about the race of the future very briefly. Uh, first and foremost, Ronan, we need a Archie Ryan update. How's our man doing? If your man Archie... Your man Archie is now, as of today's stage, sitting in 17th place on GC. Moved up from 29th place overall yesterday, up 12 places. Uh, currently sitting at 36 seconds. Um, 36, 36 seconds behind Thomas Gloag of GB, who took over the yellow jersey. Congrats to Thomas. Uh, I did. I actually... I watched the end of it today. It was on YouTube. Uh, I just watched the end of Tour 11 here, which was which was quite exciting. It was very rainy, a uh, very strange stage where uh, I guess like the winning move went at about 50K to go and just really, really, really hard. And so a, a, a fantastic finish from Thomas Glug. Apologies if we're saying your name wrong. We do have a bunch of big mountain stages coming up at the Tour 11 here, which is where we usually see the real top sort of future names uh, make themselves obvious. Yes, Ronan? Before all those mountain stages, we have a team time trial tomorrow. And Ooh. rumor has it, uh, they've changed just the last minute, split second decision, they're going to change it into a chase team time trial based on reverse <laughs> teams GC. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know how accurate that is, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm hearing. Fake news from Ronan. Uh, no, we do. We have a bunch of we have a bunch of big mountain stages coming up. And one of the one of the interesting things to me about about Total Avenue is yes, like you know, you you get your sort of future Grand Tour contenders that that show up at these things. But one of the things about junior racing is obviously the level is, is just not as high across the board, right? And so sometimes you get riders who turn out to be sprinters or turn out to be time trials who climb with the absolute best in the world at Tour de Lavenir. And so it's, it's actually kind of, it is a little bit difficult sometimes to parse exactly what these riders are going to be like, because essentially they haven't had, haven't had to specialize yet. The absolute best juniors are so much better than everybody else that they, they, they can kind of do a bit of everything right now. Uh, but we will be watching the, the big mountain stages coming up. I believe I believe at least the last two or three stages are on 
Eurosport and GCN. So if you want to watch the future of bike racing, turn those ones on. Best best example of that, isn't it? Marcel Kittel, who turned out, you know, obviously to be one of the best sprinters in the world, but was in his on the 23 days and, and junior days, one of the best time trials in the world. Yeah, exactly. And it turns out uh, to be one of the best sprinters in the world, you have to be able to produce produce quite a bit of power for more than 15 seconds. <laughs> and so not... I guess not too surprising that that it, that ends up being the case, but it always I find it interesting to sort of watch the different pathways that these riders take and the different ways in which they specialize. Because when they do get to a level where everybody is that good, they have to specialize, or else they have no chance of uh, really ever doing much at all. Like I said, we got a couple stages coming up uh, on TV. I was also chatting with a friend of the podcast, Joe Laverick, this morning. He's going to write a couple pieces for us coming up soon. And I mentioned offhand, hey, could you write us some Tour Lavender stuff? I haven't actually heard back yet, but I'm hopeful that uh, we can get some some insight from kind of inside the the U23 and kind of development scene. Because like I told him, I, I to be very honest, do not pay a whole lot of attention to junior and U23 and generally development racing. Uh, so getting some insight from folks who are inside that space, I think it'd be particularly interesting. So keep an eye out for that. Last but not least today, uh, we got a new hour record holder and, and not a name that is uh, not a Bradley Wiggins, for example, uh, but a, a name that we actually have mostly been talking about in relation to making other people faster over the last year or two. Ronan, who is our new our record holder and how did he do it? There may be another, we may need another warning here of uh, a lot of bias uh, in, in, the, in, this, in this coming piece because uh, I certainly am a big fan of the new our record holder uh, who is Dan Bigham, who on Friday set a new benchmark distance of 55.548 kilometers. Um, as amazing as that is, I kind of wish he had gone two meters further and just made it 55.555. Uh, that would have been very easy to remember, but <laughs> nevertheless, incredibly impressive, um, uh, incredibly impressive performance, but also just incredibly impressive what Dan Bigham has managed to do, you know, across the last, what, six years, really? That's all we're talking about from from being a Formula One aerodynamicist, uh, which is about as overplayed now as Primo Troglitz being a former ski jumper. Um, but that is Dan Bigham's background. Uh, he is an engineer uh, by qualification, spent some time with Mercedes F1, and then sort of moved his way into cycling. And in the piece that I wrote on Friday about him breaking the R record, I mentioned all the different R, not, not, you can't even say R attempts, because this guy just does an hour of racing as hard as he can around the track for, uh, I was going to say shits and giggles there, but I guess I've said it now anyway, so we'll keep it on there. Um, just for the crack, let's say, uh, he has done like seven or eight. Uh, I listed off the ones that I knew about uh, in, that, in that piece that sort of broke the news of his of breaking the hour record on Friday. There was actually one way back, I think close to eight or nine years ago on an outdoor velodrome somewhere in Derby or somewhere in England at least, he did like 45 kilometers. Uh, so fast forward now, and he's applied all his understanding of aerodynamics and all the sort of, you know, it, it might have been Dave Brailsford who coined the term marginal gains, but it's certainly Dan Bigham who has put marginal gains to better use than even 
Team Sky or whoever in the past could have dreamed of uh, and now has gone a full 10 kilometers further to do 55.548 but actually if I understand correctly from some photos I've seen emerge over the weekend he did break the hour record unofficially like three or four weeks ago again just for the crack on the on the velodrome in in Switzerland uh, and as the photo I've seen uh, the caption on it said something like performance is the best indicator of performance so basically dan had done it in training he knew when he turned up on friday with his uh prototype pinarello track frame which i'm a little bit annoyed with the nos grenadiers about because they told me in advance on three occasions when i continued to pass to them looking for photos of that bike before the event so that we could be ready after the event they told me there will never be any photos of these of this bike because it's top secret prototype and now there's photos everywhere. So uh, anyway, it's quite interesting to see what he used. He did use a prototype um, Panarello with a whole load of sort of upgraded bits and pieces on it from not just his own, Dan Bigham's own watch shop, online watch shop. Um, the, the crank and the chain ring and the uh, aero extensions were from watch shop, but he also used... Princeton Carbon Works uh, track wheels that were flown in from America like 24 hours in advance of the attempt um, and he used a huge 64-14 um, chain ring and sprocket just an absolutely massive gear um, but you know all that aside what he really used to his advantage was just his understanding of aerodynamics and how to get the very best out of himself and uh, not to go on too much of a sort of Dan Bingham rave, but this is a guy who turned up to track World Cups and sort of got laughed out of the velodrome. This is a guy who turned up to road races in Denmark with 28 centimeter handlebars and got laughed out of the road race. It's the guy who, you know, had the UCA change rules about the pad height for time trial extensions and change the rules around who could participate in a track World Cup. And now he's gone and, you know, put all that aside and as the old saying goes he who laughs last laughs longest i've seen quite a few pictures of dan laughing over the weekend uh with his 55.55 let's say five uh kilometer hour record uh and the point i was trying to get to is just that he's used all his expertise to get down to just this phenomenal rumored cda of 0.15 and i i actually have an an excel calculator let's say that i probably shouldn't have uh, that was used in the build-up to a previous successful or record attempt. And it looked at a host of riders and their sort of requirements in terms of power in that to break the the R record as it stood back then, which was significantly lower than it is now. And when I type in all and change all the parameters, change all the environmental conditions to as they were for Dan's attempt on Friday. And if I just change the CDA from let's say around about uh, 0.21 uh, which is what these riders would have had until relatively recently um, the power required to set it to this 55.5 kilometers an hour speed goes from around about 450 460 very very high numbers to be holding for an hour uh, if I change that to what Dan Bigham's CDA is rumored to be which is 0.15 all of a sudden the power required drops to like 335 340 which is just an insane difference uh, in terms of the power required. Now, a lot of people might hear that as an, oh, he's not actually that talented an athlete. He only had to do 330. But the actual, the fact of the matter is, you know, getting aerodynamic is one thing, but being able to sustain that position for an hour 
and still generate that kind of watts. That you know, the, the days of Dan Bigham suggesting that he's not actually a talented athlete. I, I don't want to hear that anymore. You're, you're phenomenally <laughs> talented, just in a different way than the sheer horsepower that riders who previously broke the world record had. Which means I think we can probably guess that when, I mean, when somebody with sheer horsepower shows up and can get a CBA down that low, which may or may not happen anytime soon, right? I mean, you know, Filippo Gano spent plenty of time in the in the wind tunnel. It's not come anywhere near a 0.15 CDA. But it is it is feasible that we could see a, a record go significantly higher, right? From a, from an from an athlete who could do four plus four hundred plus with a CBA that low. I mean, you're talking then you're talking a couple kilometers farther, probably, right? Yeah, potentially. But you know, it, and there's been a lot of talk about what Filippo Gana might do when he when he when he eventually attempts the hour record since before and since Dan Bigham broke the record on Friday. And you know, and part of that sort of anticipation is yes, just how phenomenally talented Ghana is, but also the fact that Dan Bigham is paid his job now as a performance engineer with Anios Grenadiers is to make Filippo Ghana faster. This guy is a staff member with Anios Grenadiers, not a writer, a staff member, and he's broken the <laughs> world record. But his day job will be to help Filippo Ghana break the record that Dan Bigham has just set. But the point I'm trying to get to is. Philippe Ogana has the power, but Dan Bigham has the mindset and the sort of the open mindedness to, you know, just to to do all these things that has eventually led him to this where he stands now as the R record holder. Even having Dan Bigham working for you, there's no guarantees that Philippe Ogana is as open minded about, you know, trying different um, aerodynamic setups or trying different positions or trying, you know, whatever it might be, you know, Dan's not going to tell us what actually made him somewhat fast on Friday because that's you know that why why would he share that with with anybody other than Filippo Ghana? Um but all those sort of marginal gains if Ghana adopts them and if they work as well for him as they did for Dan Bigham because again you know there's something about Dan Bigham's shape. He has relatively short legs, long body and an extremely long neck, which you know 10 years ago people would have said, well you're not made for cycling. But what Dan Bigham has figured out, well, actually, you're made for adopting an incredibly aerodynamic position. Um, so again, you know, that's just one of those talents, the things that he was born with that made him actually almost perfect for sitting in a time trial position. Ghana has a load of power, but he doesn't have the same makeup. Will he be able to get as aerodynamic? When you get to these sorts of speeds, the power that you can produce becomes it's it's it. it you have a significant return or diminishing returns there where you need to just produce so much more power even to just go one lap further. Um, whereas if you can reduce your aerodynamics, you can, it's like the actually the complete opposite where you can reduce the power required so much to go at the same speed. Um, so, you know, there's, while I do think Ghana, you know, will eventually tackle the R record and most likely will break it, whether or not he will go you know, the 57, 58 kilometers that we hear some people suggesting over the weekend. I don't, I don't know if that's going to be possible. Yeah. I can't see him. I can't see him getting down to 0.15 CDA. That, that's like, I just can't even, I, I don't even know if I believe that to be honest, but that's at least what was suggested. It's crazy. I, I, it's probably a number that some of our listeners are going to, are going to like, if you've ever, you know, <laughs> If you're into time trialing, uh, you probably understand that number. A, a lot of our listeners probably have no context around that. That is a crazy 
it's a crazy low number. <laughs> that's like uh, a twelve-year-old on a time trial bike. Like <laughs> that's the only thing that I can think of that you would, you would, you would, you know, somebody who's like four feet tall. Uh, it's the only way I can think that you could get to that number. But apparently, he has, or at least close to it. Um, I should say as well that not. I know we're wrapping up here, but I should say it was his coach, Jacob. Tipper, who let that slip on the commentary during the hour record attempt. So, you know, did he let it slip? Did he intentionally say it was lower than it actually is? Who knows? But the way I heard it was, oh, crap, I shouldn't have said that. Um, after he had suggested his CDA was 0.15. He was having to commentate for an hour without any on-screen graphics, letting anyone know. It was like as impressive well, as Dan Bigham's performance little, was, the commentary position as well. Uh, for listeners to the podcast, but actually... The video crew who were supposed to uh, live stream the our record attempt missed their flight, uh, and so it was actually um, just somebody who happened to be standing in the audience was throwing a camera and said, "Here, you're on live streaming, Judice." Uh, so <laughs> let's just be grateful that we had any footage and not call out the fact that there was no uh, timings or distance or positive or negative or whatever. Ironic, they weren't quick Oops. enough. Oh, the airport. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's it from us today. I think we'll probably do an even deeper dive, I would imagine, uh, on Nerd Alert, on the Nerd Alert podcast. If you don't already subscribe and listen to Nerd Alert, head on over to that channel. And you know, like I said, I, I, I can't imagine we don't dive into this over there. That's it from us today at the Cycling Tips Podcast. We will be back. I don't actually know. Are we going to be back Friday or next Monday? I haven't really decided yet. Uh, Should we, we see how we, interesting you know, racing we, is? Yeah, I think that's what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to make a call uh, based on yeah, just how good the Vuelta is basically, and whether we uh, whether we run another episode on Friday. And so, if you don't hear from us between now and next Monday, you will know that we didn't like the Vuelta very much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, with that, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.